Morning, church family. If you have your Bible, turn in those to John 14. That's where we will be for our scripture reading today. John 14, and we will read from verses 1 through 6. Before I read as well, I would like to kind of share with you all what's kind of coming up in the month of August. If you've ever wondered how the Bible all fits together, then the next three weeks are kind of for you. We are spending the next three weeks, so August, the first, sun, first second, third Sunday in August, seeing how the Bible is fabriced and seamed together. So what I'm actually going to do, I'm going to spend one week on the Old Testament kind of as a bird's eye view. Now, uh, spending one week on an overview of the Old Testament will be quite difficult, and you will just have to hold on to your hats, because it's going to be pretty intense around here. So the first week, I'm going to do the, a week on the Old Testament, then I'm going to do 400 years of silence, kind of the period between Malachi and Matthew, and then we're going to spend a week on the New Testament. Uh, why are we doing this? It's because of our mission. Our mission as Calvary Bible Church is to guide all people to become biblical followers of Christ. The idea behind it is that we want people that come to church here to be able to have a basic understanding of how the fabric of Scripture is woven together. And the idea is, too, is that you could open, after the next three Sundays, that you could open up the book of Nehemiah, for example, and have a basic understanding what is going on in that book. So we will spend the first three weeks piecing the scripture all together, and then we will spend the last week in August and the first week of September uh, answering two questions related to vision. Question number one is, who are we as a church? And question number two will be the second Sunday, where are we going as a church? So that's kind of what's coming up. So now for our scripture reading together today, we will be reading John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. I'm using a New American Standard 1995 edition. And the reason we do this, the reason we read the scripture together every Sunday morning is because the Bible tells us to. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 13 says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to the preaching and teaching. So we read and follow suit today. Notice John chapter 14 verse 1. This passage centers on the word of hope and the hope that is sourced from Jesus Christ is found in his promises that we see in verse 2, verse 3, and again in verse 4. He says this to his disciples. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas, confused, said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Amen. One of the scriptures that I treasure most on a personal level I'm about to read to you. This is a passage that has spoken to me in good times and in bad and all times. It says this, it says, this is Psalm 51. You may be familiar with this text. It says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain it in me with a willing spirit. Pray with me real quick. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. I thank you for the celebration that it is 
to worship our Savior, to gather together, to see your word, to fellowship with believers. But Lord, I pray that this would be more than just an event on our social calendar. Uh, but it would be an event where we encounter you and your word and your Holy Spirit and that your spirit would work inside of us to restore to us the joy of our salvation. Lord, I pray that we would have a heart and a mind and a spirit of joy for what you have given to us on the cross. May that, may that message never grow old or dim. Lord, today is a day of hope. Today is a day that we have comfort from the hope that you have given us in eternal life. I pray that we would uh, emulate it, that we would accept it, that we would relish it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So today I titled my sermon, uh, Finding Hope in a Troubled World. Finding Hope in a Troubled World. Perhaps this title is more appropriate than ever. Uh, people are desperate for hope. Can I get an amen to that one? People are desperate for hope, and they look for hope in all weird and strange places. Uh, people look for hope in the lottery. You know, I lived in Dallas, Texas, and the Powerball got to a billion dollars. Guess what happened to every gas station in the city, okay? I couldn't find parking. It was just lines out the door. People find hope in collecting uh, Monopoly pieces at McDonald's, if you remember those things. They will give you the Parkway Place, but they probably never printed one boardwalk. People find hope, place hope in Washington, D.C., but are often disappointed. People look for hope in things like football and Nick Saban. People look for hope in all sorts of places, in cars in debt, in jobs, and in false promises. People are looking for something to provide them hope and comfort. And maybe you're here today, you are looking for hope, and you're not sure where to turn. Or maybe today you're just a little bit discouraged or disheartened. Maybe you're at your rope's end, and you just need to be reminded of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Or maybe... Uh, your life is just blah. You kind of just get up morning after morning and do the same thing and you just need a reminder. Or maybe your life is good right now and you just need that thing in your belt to remind you of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ when a rainy day comes. John 14 is a uh, magnificent passage that we find and it all centers on this idea of hope, but really also not just this idea, the, the theological or, or theoretical notion of the hope of the future, but that hope that Jesus Christ provides should give us present comfort as well. So if you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 14. John 14, the whole chapter centers on hope and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ alone and Jesus unfolds this idea for his disciples and at the same time he gives us the hope that we have 2,000 years later in his son. But in order to really appreciate this passage let us kind of remember where we are in the story of the gospel of John. The gospel of John is a remarkable piece of literature but it's more than that. It's not just some writing that happened 2,000 years ago, amen? It's truth. 
And only could this piece of literature, this truth, be written by God because every verse, every paragraph, every story that is contained in these 21 chapters points towards one conclusion. What is the conclusion? John chapter 20, verse 31. That these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. So everything that we see points to that one conclusion. Two sermons ago, I preached on John chapter 13, and where we enter into John chapter 13, we see the upper room discourse that Jesus, the night before he dies, the night before he is crucified, the night of that he is betrayed, he sits down with his disciples and he unpacks for them truths and hopes, and he prays for them in John 13 through 17, reminding them of what is to come. And before we, you know, disconnect, before we say, oh, okay, that's nice. Before we go there, let us remember one thing very centrally. That every promise that he gives to his disciples in this section is a promise that he also gives to us. Two sermons ago was a warning. If you remember, it was, had a very unique title. It said, the title of my sermon was, Becoming Judas. Now, I've never heard a sermon on Judas Iscariot before, but that's really what the text was all about. John chapter 13, verses 18 through 30 was a warning that any one of us can end up just like Judas Iscariot. I, I marvel, <laughs> I marvel that this man named Judas can sit at the feet of Jesus, can live with him and walk the countryside for three years. And then over time, he slowly becomes disappointed with the truth of God. And then his disappointment turns in dismissing the truth. And then coupled with the determinations of the enemy led to Judas' death. But then we had Judas. We then had a opposite effect. So we had a false disciple in Judas. And then we, had, we saw a true disciple at the end of John chapter 13, verses 31 through 38. And a true disciple, a true follower of Jesus Christ has three traits. Number one, the trait of a true disciple, their purpose in life is to what? Is to glorify God. Number two, the proof that somebody is a true disciple is their love. John thirteen thirty five. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What's sad oftentimes in the church is that that one is missing. So we see the purpose of a true disciple, we see the proof of one, and then I kind of left you on a, a, hang, a cliffhanger, if you remember that. I heard a couple of moans in the audience, but I didn't go forward with my third point. But the third disciple is one that pivots, that one that recognizes their sin and returns to Jesus Christ. Now where did I get that from? The reason we know Peter is a true disciple, which we see him at the end of John chapter 13, is that he makes a mistake. He denies his Savior three times, but then he returns to follow him. And then today we turn to John chapter 14 into a chapter that the whole, the whole chapter can be characterized into one idea, which is the idea of hope. And uh, I would imagine some of you probably could use a dose of hope in your life. And recently, I needed one as well. Now, last night, I needed uh, patience and hope, okay? Uh, <laughs> last night, my, 
three-year-old, anyways, my three-year-old, I'll just say this, my three-year-old, Olivia, I love her to death, but she is killing me recently, okay? She doesn't know the meaning of sleep. It's driving me absolutely bananas. So what's happening recently is Olivia decides to wake up for no reason. I mean, it's not like something loud happens. She just wakes up at... 2 a.m. in the morning, and she's crying, so then I try to talk her into sleeping again, but it just doesn't work with a three-year-old. You can't rationalize with them, okay? It doesn't work that way. So anytime I, she wakes up in the middle of the night, I go and get her. I wake up, and I am half asleep, and I pick up this uh, giant bag of concrete that wiggles. That thing, that, that girl is heavy. And then I slowly head towards the stairs, and it's dark and I cannot see a thing. Now pause. How many of you can relate to that? How many of you have ever walked in your house late at night? What's that experience like? It's a little nerve-wracking, right? I mean, especially if you're about to head downstairs with your most precious possession ever, okay? So if you're me, you're wondering what toy you're going to step on in the hallway or what shoe was left in the middle of the hallway so you could trip and fall with your three-year-old down the stairs all the way to the bottom. So I'm, you know, every time I pick up this big bag of concrete that wiggles, I'm always a little bit nervous when I come to the edge of the stairs until I find one item, the hand railing. That even in the midst of the darkness, I reach for the hand railing, and as soon as I find that rail, I know that I am safe. It is the hope that will arrive in safety. What we see in our passage today are handrails of hope. That in the midst of your walking through the darkness of this world, in the midst of a difficult time, in the midst of a good time, in the midst of all times of life, there are hand railings that Jesus gives to us in this passage to provide us hope whenever we need it. So if you have your Bible, again, if you have not opened those, I turn to John chapter 14. The question we are answering today is where do we find hope in this world? Where do we find hope in this world? And if you have your text in front of you, if you do not have a hard copy version, there should be one directly in front of you. But if you have your Bible in front of you, I want you to just kind of look at the passage with me before I kind of break it down into different sections of the Scripture. Whenever you study the text, whenever I do, what I do first is I just read the passage as it lies, just looking at all the nitty-gritty little details, and then I take a step back and I try to understand the overall flow and sections of the Scripture. So if you have the Bible in front of you, you've already read it, if you could break down John chapter 14, 1-6, through 6, what three sections would they be? See, part one is verse one, part two is verses two through four, and part three is verses five and six. Notice part one. Part one in verse one, it contains Jesus' plea for hope. Jesus' plea for hope. And if you have your notes, that is the first blank. Notice John chapter 14, verse one. Do not let your heart be troubled. It's easier said than done, Amen. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. If you see this verse, it breaks down into two halves. You have the first part. It says, do not let your heart be troubled. And then the second half is believe in God. Believe also in me. But then let's just ask the question. Why does Jesus say the first phrase? Do not let your heart be troubled. 
Why does he know? It's because he's God. What does he say? It's because the disciples are troubled. He knows what's going on in their hearts and in their minds. They are troubled. The word for trouble here is the Greek word terasso. And this word is used 17 times in the New Testament. And most recently in John 13, 21, the word troubled here it means it can be worried or distressed or bothered or stirred up. And it's a present tense verb, Greek imperative. The imperative tells me it is a command, but the present tense gives me a continuing action in the present. So what is Jesus telling his disciples? He's commanding them, do not keep on being troubled. Why are they troubled? Think about where they are in that upper room. We disconnect from other people's stories but today right now i want you to feel empathy for where they sit because they began following jesus three years ago full of optimism even in john chapter one one of them explains that we have found the messiah so they had this picture three years ago that jesus is the messiah and that he would come and establish an earthly kingdom and even at to the point where they enter into the upper room when they walk up those stairs when they partaking in the passover feast with jesus they're still full of optimism because they argue on the way up to the upper room and even in it itself who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of god but what did they find out in john chapter 13 that's why they're troubled they entered the room full of optimism but now they're in complete distress why for three reasons jesus has unfolded to them that he is leaving that their leader is going back to the father number two that their companion named judas is going to betray the Son of God, and number three, their leader amongst the eleven, Peter, is going to deny the Savior three times. If you could be up in the upper room, you're sitting around that low-laying table in this U-shape, and Jesus unfolds this for you, that all of the dreams that you have had in your entire life, all of the hopes that you've had of an earthly kingdom to be established, and that you would inherit a place in it, that's what the disciples are thinking. All of that has been changed. So they find themselves to be troubled. All that they hope for is different. Jesus' plea in John chapter 14, verse 1, is a plea for hope. But then notice the second half of verse 1. It really comes down into two phrases. It says, believe in God, and it says, believe also in me. I take that to be an indicative verb followed by an imperative verb. The indicative verb is first and the imperative verb is second. The indicative verb is a, is a verb of certainty. He's, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, you as a fact, you believe in God, then believe, command, in me. So what is Jesus doing there? He's equating himself to God. He's saying, to them, okay, if you believe in Yahweh... And since you believe in Yahweh, believe in me because I am Yahweh. I am God. This is kind of what he's doing. He again, Jesus again, for the 18th billionth time, I'm slightly exaggerating there, but the 18th billionth time in the Gospel of John, he reminds them of who he is, that he's not just a man. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a prophet, but that he is God himself. We see this over and over again with two key words in the original language. Ego, Amy, I am. 
Jesus says this again and again and again. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the light of the world. And when Jesus says, Ego Amy, when he says, I am, he is intentionally correlating the word I am to the Old Testament name of God, which is Yahweh, which means I am who I am. So since they believe in God, they should then take comfort and believe in Jesus Christ because he is God himself. In the midst of their trouble, Jesus reminds them of what they already believe. We are just like the disciples. That in the midst of trouble, we often forget what we hold to be true. That in the midst of trouble... We should remember what we believe. Friends, listen to me. We walk by faith and not by sight. That when we are stressed or troubled or disheartened, what do we typically do? We try to figure out a way to make it on our own accord. We try to put together a plan to conquer the problem instead of just taking a step back and remembering that we believe that God is actually in control, that God is a God of love. We should remember what we believe every time that we are disheartened, Where do we find hope in this world? That's a trick question. If you notice that, hopefully one of y'all scratched your minds. Because we don't find hope in this world. We find hope in God. We find hope in Christ and in Him alone. So we see Jesus' plea for hope. He tells them not to be troubled. So since they believe in God the Father, they should also believe in Him. But then notice the promises of hope. This is, verses 2 through 4 are some of the most famous passages in all of the scripture. Notice them with me, but they're vastly misunderstood. John 14, verse 2, these are the promises of hope. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way which I am going." So Jesus' pleas in verse 1 and Jesus' promises of hope in verses 2, 3, and 4. In each verse we see a different promise. Promise number 1 is found in verse 2. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Promise number 1 is Jesus' preparation. Jesus leaves them, but not as orphans, but as one that goes to heaven, to the Father's house, to prepare them a place for their arrival. That even in the midst of their faithlessness, even in the midst of their distress, Jesus reminds them of the eternal life that awaits them. And what a wonderful reminder of eternal life. That Jesus is in heaven at this hour preparing you a place to call you to himself. He is reminding them that he has a plan, that he is up in heaven, that he has not abandoned them as spiritual orphans, but that he is awaiting their arrival. But the KJV, if you have that, if you know that translation, the KJV translates the phrase, there are many dwelling places as mansions. The original language doesn't really talk about mansions in verse 2. What it really describes are rooms. Kind of the cultural significance of this is that Jesus kind of builds an addition or a room onto 
the house of God, so to speak. In a lot of cultures, what happens is that when their daughter or sons get married, they build an addition to the house, and they all kind of live together. That's kind of the idea that I see in John chapter 14, verse 2, that Jesus is building an additional room, waiting for all those who believe to arrive after their death. If you're sitting in the upper room, and you hear... Jesus say that he goes to the Father's house and prepares them a place. What is the significance to you right then and there? You're sitting around the table. Your meal is eaten. I'm sure they have dishes all around. Their feet are clean because Jesus already washed them. They've been arguing amongst themselves. And they're sitting there and they're hearing that Jesus is leaving, but he's not abandoning them. He's going to heaven. If as an emotional level, what are they hearing? That Jesus has not forgotten them. That Jesus is up in heaven preparing them a place. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you're a believer in him, then God has not forgotten you. Oftentimes in life, we, when we go through something that is disappointing or something we did not expect, we struggle with that very thought. That how could God have done this to me? God feels like he left, that he has vanished, that he's as a vapor in the wind. Some of us feel like Psalm 22 verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That a man after God's own heart can feel that way and so can we. But God hasn't forgotten you. No matter where you are in life, he is waiting for your arrival. And let us remember our home is not here on earth, but it is there in heaven that we are merely passing through. That this is a temporary residence for our eternal home in heaven. We see his first promise, his preparing a place. But then notice the second promise, verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Promise number two for hope is that Jesus will return. What does Jesus say? I will come again and receive you to myself. The idea of Jesus' imminent return is a source of hope throughout the New Testament. Sometimes we get so consumed by life that we forget that he wins, that he will return, and that if he... Wait, we die before he returns that we arrive in the place that he has prepared for us. The idea of hope of his return is a theme throughout the New Testament. Titus chapter 2 says this, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus, the Messiah, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his own, eager to do what is good. The imminent return of Christ provides us hope. Why? Because we know that we will be rescued from this disaster. The world is a disaster. Can I get an amen in that one? <laughs> I got to hear right amen. Is this, and it, the longer I live, the more I realize its own brokenness and its sinfulness. How really of a disaster this world is. Friends, if you are looking to anything inside of this world to give you hope of tomorrow, you will be disappointed. 
You do not find hope in this world. You can only truly find hope in Jesus Christ. Period. And notice the third promise of hope, verse 4. And you know the where, you know the way and where I am going. Promise for hope number three is his truth. A source of hope for their present distress is found in what they already know. What does he say? Look at it again, verse four. And you know the way where I am going. He is reminding them of the truth that they already know, that he's already told them 18 billion times that he has to return to the Father, that he has to go to heaven, that he's not, but he's not abandoning them. And the word to know here is the Greek word oida. The word oida here is a, a Greek word for a factual understanding, a factual knowledge. It's not the Greek word gnosko, which is an experiential and an intimate knowledge. They know factually where Jesus is going. Why do they only know factually and not experientially? It's because they haven't seen it yet. They must walk by faith and not by sight. Jesus has told them the factual knowledge that he will leave and that he is preparing them a place and they have to remember what they believe. But what I find refreshing, you know, one of the things I love about the Bible is that there's only one perfect person in the whole thing. We have a lot of bad examples <laughs> throughout, the, throughout the Bible. I, I love seeing uh, the saints of old mess up and make mistakes. And what I see here, I see Thomas and I see Peter and I see Philip again in John chapter 14. And I see them all questioning the plan of God. Despite what? Despite knowing the truth. They say, when are you going to reveal yourself to us? Again and again and again, we see their lack of faith and their lack of understanding. And when they get worried, they forget what they know to be true. If we're really honest in life, whenever we get really worked up, whenever we get really worried, whenever we get really stressed, what are we forgetting? We are forgetting what we know to be true. Let me give you an example. How many of you worry when you get onto an airplane? Okay. My wife, whenever we take off, squeezes my hand and it feels like it's going to break, okay? But every time we get onto an airplane, what are we forgetting? That flying is the safest way to travel. It is. It's the safest way to travel. It's the same way in our Christian life. That whenever we get troubled or distressed or disheartened, what are we oftentimes forgetting? We're forgetting what we know to be true. And when circumstances around us fall apart, what are we forgetting to be true? That number one, when we worry, we often forget that God is in control. Then in an out-of-control world, we know to be true that God is in control. When we worry, we forget that God is loving. God is love. I mean, how do we know this to be true? Not only do we know that God is love is true by the Scripture itself, but we also know it just from life. The more I live, the more I realize how messed up this world is and how sinful and broken we are. And the mere existence of love 
in the darkness of the world tells me, number one, that God is love and that he has created us in his image, that we can then love other people. That God is in control, that God is a God of love, and that when we worry, we forget, number three, that God keeps his promises. John 14 is full of promises of God, but one I'm going to remind you of that you should put in your hip pocket. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says, All things work together for the good to those who love God, to those called according to his purpose. So when we worry, forget that God is in control, that God is love, that God keeps his promise. And we also worry that God, in the end, wins. So many times we get so focused on how messed up the world is. How the world is just deteriorating and falling apart that we forget that God is victorious in the end. That God wins. That the plan of God will not be thwarted. That he will redeem us. That he will rescue us out of this messed up world. When you're stressed, troubled, or distressed or worried, reach for what you know to be true. Him and the word. Where do we find hope in this world? My, we find hope in Christ in his promises. But then notice what he reminds them of in verse 5 and 6. This is kind of the third piece. They not only reminds them, he pleads with them, he reminds them of his promises, but he also reminds them of the person of hope is the third blank down below. Verse 5, notice Thomas. I love Thomas because he's just like us, because he's all messed up and he doesn't really understand what's going on. Thomas says, said to the Lord, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? He probably thinks that Jesus is going to go to the Greeks as has been unfolded throughout the Gospel of John. And so Thomas is all confused. And I would imagine Jesus is like every other parent of young children. You tell him 48 times to not to do something and my Olivia still takes her juice and goes, okay, dumps it on the floor. I'm sure Jesus is here. Okay, I've told you over and over again. I just, and I just told you five seconds ago that I go back to the Father, that I'm going to heaven, that I'm dying. And he rubs his eyes, I'm sure, but then he patiently replies, better than I would, verse 6, and Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Verse 6 is a sermon in and of itself, and I might have to revisit it next time I preach John. But notice with me the articles there. Perhaps there's no more important article in any piece of literature than we find in verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. What is that telling me? What is the article in the original language? You have each of those words and you have an article before each and every one of those words. I am the way, the truth, and the life. What is it saying? It's saying exclusivity. That there is only one way, there is only one truth to eternal life, and there is only one way to life itself. Despite what our culture says, despite what our inclusive and universal and postmodern world says, that there is one way to heaven. Truth is exclusive. And if you think about the truth itself, the idea of truth, shouldn't truth be exclusive? Otherwise, it wouldn't be truth. There would be many truths. 
There is truth, and the truth is exclusive. There is only one way to heaven. There is only one truth to eternal life, and there is only one way to life that is transformed in God. And that is through believing in Jesus Christ himself. No one comes to the Father but through me. Allow me to be blunt. We live in a postmodern, universal, accepting, whatever that means, world. But despite what Oprah says, there is not one heaven and there are many paths. That is foolhardy. That is of Satan and the world. Despite what the world may tell you, there, is no, there are not many ways to heaven. There is one. Despite what some preachers say on Larry King, there are not many ways to heaven. There is one. Despite what some Christians may believe in this postmodern world, being a good person isn't enough. Believing in Yahweh or another God isn't enough. There is not many, there are not many ways to heaven. There is one, and that is through the blood of Jesus Christ, and His blood paid for my sin in full, and atoned for the price of my sin that I could not pay, and that it gives to me the, the gift of eternal life that I only open by faith. There is one way to heaven. Call me ignorant, and I don't care. Friends, one of the things I've noticed over time is that we kind of become immune to the diseases in our culture. That slowly our culture will try to convince you that there are many ways to heaven or that Jesus is not the only way or this is the right way to thinking and this is this. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid to be different. Do not be afraid to stand firm. Do not be afraid to tell people the truth that they will burn in hell unless they believe in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. There are not many paths. There is one, and it was plowed. It was made. It was created by God Himself. And it was bought with the precious blood of Christ. There are not infinite ways to heaven. You cannot be good enough to make it. Let us not be tempted to water down the truth for the sake to avoid a conflict or accommodate a ever-growing sinful culture. But let me turn the table. Let me take a step back and turn it. Let us look in the mirror for just a second. If there is only one way to heaven... If there are people in this world that have never heard the message of Christ, then what is their destiny? And we can assume that people in this world will find YouTube or find the Internet and find the answers to the gospel. But what I've found in life that a life-to-life conversation speaks so much more powerfully than some video on YouTube. The person in the cubicle that is next to us at work needs to hear the message of the gospel. They need to have somebody that is bold enough to be looked at as ignorant, as foolhardy, as somebody that just doesn't understand the way the world works now. I don't care the way the world works. There is a truth, and there is one truth, and the friend, the neighbor, your family member, your child, your parent, whoever it is in your life, they need to hear the truth of the gospel because there is no other way. I am the way, 
the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. Where do we find hope in this world, this troubled world? You don't. You find hope in Christ, in His promises, and in His person. If you have your notes, that is the answer to the bottom of the page. Hope in Christ. Find hope in Christ, in His promises, and in His person. But to you all, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, oftentimes we can be distracted by the world, we can become disheartened by the enemy, we can be pulled aside by our flesh. And if you're needing hope, then I would encourage you to find it in our Savior Jesus Christ and in His Word. We Remember, we walk by faith and not by sight. I heard uh, recently, I don't know where it was, maybe on YouTube, okay, I don't know. But I heard that the utility of Christianity to the world is that it provides hope. That is true, but it provides so much more than that. And what I find amazing about that statement is that even the world itself recognizes that Christianity, Christianity provides hope to the world. That people in the world themselves will look almost anywhere to find that hope, to find that direction, to find that little nugget of truth and happiness and joy, to make them feel a little bit better on themselves. They look for a series of science and evolution to make them feel better and find the hope of life. But there is only one hope. And that is found in Jesus Christ. There is only one truth. There is only one source of hope. There is only one way. There is only one path. And if we look to any other path, let's just be real. Um, in the Christian life, we can become just kind of, ugh. Anybody ever been there before? This is just me? Just, ugh. And when we get to be, ugh, we just look for places to find us, to make us a little happier, a little more joyful, to give us a little bit of oomph. But any time you search for anything that's within the world, any time you search for anything that pleases your flesh, any time you seek anything like that, it will always leave you empty. The only source of joy and hope in this world is in the person and character of Christ. Period. He is the only source of joy that is everlasting. If you find yourself to be like David in Psalm 40, if you find yourself to be in the miry pit, if you find yourself to be like David in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you see yourself being like David in Psalm 139, triumphant, or if you find yourself to be like David in Psalm 51, then my question for you is, where will you go for hope? Where will you go for comfort? Where will you go to set you back on your path? So my application for us today is very simple. It is this. What do you hope in? What do you hope in? We all have things we daydream about. We all have ambitions or desires. We all have ideas or vices or dreams that we run to when we need something. Now, but what do you hope in? Maybe a better way to answer this is this. When you are faced with an unexpected circumstance, what do you do? Do you dream a little bit more? Do you work a little bit harder? Do you buy one more thing that you, don't, that you cannot afford? That's the American way, right? Okay. What do you do? 
Because there's only one. If you get anything else out of my sermon today, there's only one thing that can provide you with eternal hope and joy. And that is Jesus Christ and in Him alone. He doesn't give him anything else. That all the promises that he has in John chapter 14 are sourced in the salvation and the provision of God. What do you hope in? Where do you find your hope? Friends, let us not place our joy in our dreams, ambitions, and what the world says happiness is and the desires that it has because the world will one day vanish like a vapor. Let us place our hope in his promises that the last breath of my life here today, if he has not returned by then, please, Lord, come. Uh, the promise that I have that I pass on from this life is that I enter into the place of eternal, eternal rest, into the place that he has prepared for us in the Father's house, that he is working all things together for the good to those who love God, to those called according to his purpose, that the new heaven and new earth, that that place will be a place of complete and eternal paradise, far away from the sicknesses and stresses of this world. That is the future that awaits all who believe in him. Let us place our hope in his promise that one day our Savior will return. And I pray it is before I pass away. Let us place our hope in his person. That Jesus is worthy of our trust. That he has not abandoned us as orphans. But that we are children of God. Heirs of Christ. Co-heirs with him. And that he is in heaven preparing us a place in the Father's house to be with him for eternity. Where do we find hope in this world? We find hope in Christ, in his promises, and in his person. Before I close today, I would like to just share the gospel. What do I mean by the gospel? That word is thrown around a lot. It's uh, kind of lost, unfortunately, its significance in a lot of ways in our culture. But the gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion. It means good news, literally. And the gospel... I hope to share it in a fresh and different way. If you're sitting here this morning and you have never had a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, if you feel far from Him, you might have been baptized. You might have come forward. You might have prayed some prayer that a preacher talked you into and he said after you prayed that prayer because you read this incantation that you're somehow a believer. If you just feel far from the Lord, if you feel distant from Him, if you feel like you've never had a relationship with God, maybe that's the conviction of the Holy Spirit to believe in the Son of God as your Savior and Lord. You may have been baptized, you may have even walked the aisle, you may have been told that you are a Christian, but none of those things get you to heaven. There is one way, one truth, and one life. A famous preacher, Vadi Bakum, says this. He says, hell, hell will be filled with people who didn't drink, who didn't cuss, and who may have been baptized. Why? Because not one of those things makes someone a Christian. If you've never surrendered your life to the Lord, if you could take your life, the 50 years that you've lived, and you put it off in a span across this stage, 
And if you cannot put a marker in the sand of one moment in your life that you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then maybe today you are not a Christian. Maybe today that you are not saved, that you are not His. Today, I would encourage you to trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and in Him and in Him alone. Before I pray... There will be a couple of people up front. If you would like to see somebody during the, in, during the last song or even after the service, they will be up front waiting for you. If you would like to pray with somebody, we would like to talk with somebody, it would be Dustin and Donna here this morning. And let us pray together. Heavenly Father, um, Lord, we don't worship a God. We worship the God. We worship a, a, the Savior that has made the way, the truth, and the life. And Lord, what a magnificent idea that the Savior of the world has not just given us fire insurance, something to just that when we die we move on, but Lord, that the idea of salvation, the idea of His return, the idea of Him preparing us a place is designed to give us hope and comfort now. Lord, that we can be bold. And Lord, I pray that we would be bold enough to be misunderstood by the world. That we would be bold enough not to care what this postmodern universal world says. Let us be ignorant. Let us be bold. Let us be different. Let our love shine before people in a way that they would see that we have something different and that they would want what we got. Lord, we love your word. What a magnificent truth that it is and that it gives us life. I pray that the Holy Spirit today would take your scripture and change our lives, transform us from the inside out. Lord, if there is somebody that does not know you as Savior today, if they've never trusted you, I pray that they would come before you and pray and receive you and believe in you as their Savior. Thank you for today. Thank you for this church. In Jesus' name, amen.